Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, the podcast where we hear from innovators, pioneers, and thought leaders in the world of blockchain and cryptocurrency. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you've been enjoying Unchained, pop in iTunes to give us a top rating or review. That helps other listeners find the show. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at Laura Shin. This episode is brought to you by Bitwise. Last year, Bitwise created the world's first cryptocurrency index fund, the Bitwise Hold 10 which holds the top 10 cryptocurrencies and rebalances monthly. The fund has several hundred LPs and is currently accepting accredited investors. To learn more and invest in the Bitwise Cryptocurrency Index Fund, visit www.bitwiseinvestments.com slash unchained. Unchained is sponsored by Preciate. Founded by Ed Stevens, Preciate is building the most valuable relationships on earth. In each episode of Unchained, Preciate sponsors the recognition of an individual or group in crypto for an achievement. Who in crypto will be recognized today? Stay tuned to find out. Today's episode is brought to you by KeepKey, the easy, safe, and simple way to protect your Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and many other digital assets. There's no time like the present to protect yourself from hackers, malware, and viruses. Rest easy knowing that your digital assets are protected. Visit KeepKey.com to order your secure hardware wallet today. Today's guests are Perry Ann Boring, the founder and president of the Chamber of Digital Commerce, and Amy Kim, the Chamber's Global Policy Director and General Counsel. Welcome, Perry Ann and Amy. Hi, Laura. Thanks, Laura. So let's start with Perry Ann. Tell me about how you got into Bitcoin and crypto and how you came to found the Chamber of Digital Commerce. Yeah, no, thank you. And uh, so we launched the Chamber of Digital Commerce in July of 2014. I formerly worked on Capitol Hill and I learned about Bitcoin through uh, my work that I did on the Jobs Act. Um, so as an economist, when I first heard or learned that there was this currency out there that was not controlled or owned or operated by the government or a corporation or any organization, to me, that was just a fascinating concept. And I wanted to understand it better and learn more. So that started the, uh, the trip down the, uh, the rabbit hole. And over the course of a few years, I, I did a, a, just a personal study into the industry. And what came out of that was me being completely convinced that this is the most important thing I'll see in my lifetime and was really excited about it and just wanted to work in the industry. So I had to spend a little bit of time doing a self-study and um, understanding what I would have to contribute to this industry because that was in pretty early days. And at the time, most of the people in the ecosystem were software developers, cryptologists, those in the technical community. So uh, it became pretty obvious over time that the industry really needed an advocate a team on the ground in Washington, D.C. to work on the policy challenges. So 2013 was really kind of the wake-up call for me because that was the year where the Bitcoin industry had a handful of very public scandals, everything from Silk Road and Mt. Gox, and that had ripple effects around the policy community. So what came out of those two incidents were multiple hearings on Capitol Hill scrutinizing the technology and dangers of it, um, we started seeing guidance come out from the regulators, and there were a lot of talks in the general narrative in D.C. was that Bitcoin was being used to facilitate illegal transactions. But there were very few people that were able to articulate the positive benefits of this technology. And I felt like it was super important that the industry was able to balance that out. Um, so we founded the chamber uh, to be an advocate for the blockchain ecosystem, and we've been at it for almost four years, and we've grown quite a bit, um, and we've made a significant amount of progress in that um, approach. Yeah, I think we saw in the recent hearings that it does seem our legislators, or at least some of them, 
are a little bit more well-educated on this topic than I think some people in the community expected. Um, and a lot of people were saying it's because of the work that groups like yours have done. Amy, what is your role at the chamber? I lead the uh, legal and policy work here at the chamber. So I'm um, helping to try to do exactly what you just mentioned, really, which is um, a lot of education and information, and in some cases, advocacy on some of the issues that are being raised in Congress and in the agencies and sometimes even in the state legislatures on some of the issues that are impacting uh, blockchain and, and virtual currencies. And how did you come to work at the chamber? And what were you doing before? Yeah, I was a, a lawyer in private practice for um, many years and started working with um, virtual currency companies around 2010, really, when you know when you have clients that come asking for, for uh, advice in that area. So my background is in um, cross-border compliance programs, so anti-money laundering, sanctions compliance, uh, and then because of this industry, uh, the state money transmitter areas. And so uh, started then, uh, I was in the audience when Perry Ann announced that she was creating a trade association, and I thought, that is such a great idea. It's, it's, it's a really needed um, function, and went up to her and introduced myself and said, how can I help? Um, and so helped her for a couple of years just in my spare time. And then last year, she uh, convinced me to join full time. And really, it was just obvious to me that blockchain was going to have such an impact on our lives and in industry and, and everywhere else. And I just needed to be a part of it. Overall, what are the main functions of the Chamber of Digital Commerce? What does kind of your daily activity look like or, or your weekly schedule? Well, our mission generally is to promote the acceptance and use of digital assets and blockchain-based technologies. And we do that through education, advocacy. We work very closely with the policy community, the regulatory agencies, the industry. And our goal uh, out of all of this is to help develop an environment that fosters innovation, jobs, and investment. And we very much believe that public policy is one of the biggest risks to the barriers of adoption of blockchain technology. So a big piece of our, our day and our time is working with the policy community, whether that's on Capitol Hill, with law enforcement, regulators. Um, and the other side of that is working with the industry, spending a lot of time with our members, really understanding the, the businesses um, who are utilizing blockchain, what their challenges are, and then providing a platform for those two communities to come together to discuss these challenges and to work together to build a policy environment that's going to grow the ecosystem in a responsible way. So it's a lot. Um, we stay really busy and there's a lot of different stakeholders. We've built a really big community and a network of people and stakeholders um, who are all invested in the future of what this technology looks like. So a lot of what we're doing is is coordinating, collaborating, and bringing people together. Before we dive into all the particularities around regulation in the crypto space, I actually want to get a big picture look. At a high level, what would you say is the current state of crypto regulation in the U.S.? Well, it's very complicated. There are a lot of different regulatory agencies who are all clamoring for jurisdiction over this technology. Just to give a, a super high-level kind of intro, um, it really all started with FinCEN at the, the U.S. Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network in 2013, um, put out the first piece of guidance that said convertible virtual currencies would be treated like a currency. Um, so you had that regulatory framework that um, started off there. And then shortly after that, the Treasury decided that they were going to tax this as property. Um, and then we saw the CFTC come out and said that Bitcoin meets the definition of a commodity. And now we're seeing a significant amount of activity from the SEC um, applying securities laws to this technology. So that's just four examples, currency, property, commodity, security, of how regulators are looking at this technology. And there's more stakeholders than that because you have law enforcement, you have the consumer regulators, um, and then you have the states. So it's very complicated. This is not something that volunteers can do in their spare time to navigate through this. It really takes a dedicated effort to truly understand the legal and regulatory landscape that's developing and to also be able to help build an environment that's going to help the industry, but also take into the unique attributes of blockchain. Um, so it's, it's a little all over the place, and it's, um, it is a lot to manage and navigate through. And Laura, I would, I would just add to that if I could. Um, 
know, I do think, I mean, just building on what Perianne said, so what you can see is that it's been somewhat, it's grown in a fragmented way with, with not as much collaboration and, I guess, high-level guidance from a policy perspective. So you see a lot of agencies enforcing their own laws, um, in an, uh, sometimes in an enforcement role, without uh, a higher-level understanding of uh, the benefits of the technology and how and and looking at it through that lens and then pushing that policy down um, into the agencies and I, I think we'll start to see more of that we already are starting to see more of that collaboration uh, and I think that we'll continue to see that in 2018. One thing I was curious about is if all these agencies are looking at it in these different ways: currency, commodity, property, security. Does that create confusion for industry players? It's very confusing. I mean, it's confusing. It can be confusing for us, but for any company, especially a startup that doesn't have a team of lawyers and compliance and regulatory experts uh, on hand full time, uh, it's a lot for anyone to have to navigate. And it does create confusion. Um, One example of that is with tax law, where you have uh, the IRS who's taxing this as a property. Um, but then you have Fenson who said this is going to be regulated as a currency. And there's um, a number of different questions the community has about how to comply with that when there's uh, other regulations out there that have put this technology in other boxes. Um, so there are a lot of areas where we could use greater clarity. Um, and that's why it's important to have an organization like the Chamber that's fighting for that. So let's actually put a pin in the taxation discussion, because I I think that right now, the biggest question on everyone's minds is whether or not the Securities and Exchange Commission will regulate tokens as securities or initial coin offerings as sales of securities. Why has this become the big question? What are the issues? Well, from our perspective, you know, I mean, the SEC is certainly taking um, the view that certain tokens uh, can be securities based on the facts and circumstances. That's what we saw in the issuance of the Dow report. Um, and then you saw that evolve over the coming months. And, and the Munchie case uh, also kind of extended that into marketing. So certainly um, that is, I, I think, you know, in our view, a, a big frontier as far as how that landscape is going to evolve um, in that enforcement environment, given that the, the market for token issuances um, has grown so explosively as well. So you have those kind of two interplaying industries coming together. And so, yes, how, how the SEC ends up regulating that, will all ICOs be securities? Uh, like the chairman, you know, he said that all the ICOs he's seen um, so far are securities. I, I think that what that really means um, has yet to play out. And just describe what happened in Munchie there and what you meant about how it crossed over into marketing. Munchie was designed as what? Was it designed as a utility token? Yeah, I, I mean, that, I think that was the intent is that um, they they were issuing a token to enable users to use their platform um, in, the, in, the, in the food industry and in restaurant industry. Um, and so a lot was said about, you know, how that token would be utilized on that platform. Um, what they also did, though, was uh, was say in their materials that the token would likely appreciate in value, uh, you know, making other statements like that, that um, that that went that crossed the line um, for the SEC. And for listeners who have not yet learned what the Howey test is, that is the test the SEC uses to determine whether or not an, a token offering in particular is a security. We actually had a previous a couple of previous episodes that described this, but I'll just briefly recap. The definition is an investment contract in a common enterprise with an expectation of profits dependent upon a third party or promoter. And so in this case, Munchie's kind of like promise of profits and then the fact that it depended on this company, Munchie, executing this project well were probably the um, factors that tipped it over for the SEC into being called a security. One other issue I wanted to talk about is that when I do a lot of these interviews, a lot of my sources will say something like, clearly some crypto assets like Bitcoin are commodities. But then when I ask them which other tokens they would put in that bucket, they hem and haw a little bit. And I had kind of... uh, I guess, inferred from the Dow report that the SEC was going to put Ether 
uh, from the Ethereum network in that bucket. But Chairman Clayton, as you mentioned, has recently been saying that all the ICOs he's seen are securities offerings. And Ethereum did have what I guess we would recognize today as an initial coin offering. And so that sort of leads us to this question. Does that make Ether today a security? To my mind, if so, wouldn't have they said, wouldn't they have said so in the Dow report? And if I really understand the Howey test correctly, to my mind, Ether, as we know it today, does not pass the Howey test. But what is your sense of where the line is being drawn about securities versus commodities? Do you feel confident that Ether will not be considered a security? Uh, you know, that's, I, I mean, I think that's a, it's an interesting um, question. You know, certainly this SEC had the opportunity to make that statement in the Dow report, um, and they didn't. Um, and certainly uh, Ether it has, um, it is designed as a utility um, as the gas of the, of the Ether network, so or Ethereum network. So, um, you know, for the moment, I, I think really the focus is on some of these other uh, tokens and other yeah, other tokens really that and whether they uh, would be considered securities or not. And I think that platforms are looking at that closely because if you are trading a token that happens to be a security, you, that triggers you know, registration and other obligations um, with the SEC. Yeah. And we also had the opportunity um, to meet privately with the SEC after that hearing just to get a little bit more clarity on Chairman Clayton's statements where he said every ICO that he has seen to him looked like a security. And we just asked him, you know, could you just explain that in a little bit more detail what he meant by that? And they said, you know, this is based on every ICO that they have seen. And they also said that they haven't seen every ICO. And I said, you know, there's 1,500 or more crypto tokens out there. So every single one of those is a security. And they said, no, it's just the ones that have come to us and we've had the opportunity to examine. So there, I think there, there's a lot of that is yet to be seen. Uh, and, and the dialogue is, is, is still in, in, in progress and that the SEC is still forming its position on this. Did you ask them about Ethereum? We did. <laughs> we did. And um, again, my sense is that if it was going to go in, in the direction of a security, that they've had the opportunity to do that, and, and, and they, they have not so far. Um, but at the same time, we couldn't necessarily rule that out because there, there is still unclarity in that, in that question. Yeah, well, one other thing that I wonder is there is this, uh, I guess, maybe sentiment isn't exactly the word, but a line of thinking in the community that promises of future tokens sold before the network has launched are definitely sales of securities. This is something I've both written about. And then Marco Santori, who was on my podcast earlier, put out a white paper kind of promoting this line of thinking. And so he... And the other co-authors of that paper who are protocol labs who did the Filecoin ICO, they were calling for what they call simple agreements for future tokens to be considered uh, sales of securities. And that's when people buy the, the promise of tokens before the network launches. But they and, uh, and some others also take the approach that once the network is live, the token is then a commodity. And so this, I think, kind of goes back to this Ethereum question. It's sort of like, oh, at the time of the sale, would Ether or the promise of the future Ether be considered a security? But then now that the network is live, is it a commodity? So I just wonder, do you get that there is a sense that there's some magical line at which a, tra a security transforms into co a commodity? And do you feel like there's some consensus around when that happens? Laura, my sense is that there isn't consensus on, around when that actually happens. Um, and I think that even the, the regulators are um, trying to sort that out. I mean, you've heard some of the commissioners at the CFTC raise that very question, and, and, I, and I think they're still working through that. I mean, we're dealing in a, um, with, in a space where you have tokens that can uh, represent something that um, and be traded and maybe even, um, like you've kind of suggested, it become one thing or be one thing and then become something else. Um, and that's, um, you know, something that we may not have seen before and really need to think carefully about how to 
to regulate that, if we regulate that, and, and what those parameters should be. So, you know, we're all trying to work through that and find a way to help this industry move forward in a responsible way, uh, protecting investors, of course, um, protecting the markets, but still allowing um, some of these innovations to flourish, which um, I think they're very important innovations, and, and we need to think about all three of those things um, together. Yeah, well, so when you said it may not be something that we've seen before, that's actually something I was going to ask you. Has there ever been anything in history that started off as a security that later transformed into a commodity, or is could this potentially be the first time? Uh, you know, when you think about, I mean, the traditional securities, things that are shares in a company, you know, no. Whether it's the very first time, I, you know, I'm not so sure, but certainly it's unique. I mean, a lot of things about this industry are unique. They don't fit well into laws that were written 10, 20, 30 years ago often. You see that not just in the token space. Um, so, uh, and we might have new, um, new sets of you know, circumstances to be looking at here. One other thing I wanted to discuss were the recent laws in Wyoming that were passed that create a category of blockchain tokens that are not securities. I think this is what we in crypto would recognize as a utility token, although they didn't use that phrasing in the law. But this is a token that's not structured as a security, but has a function beyond its investment value, sort of the way that, for instance, a Manhattan condo has a function beyond its value as an investment. And one of the qualifications in their law for these utility tokens is that the network be live. So I was kind of curious to know, do you think that this is a stance we'll see other states or the federal government take that if the network's live, then the utility token is not a security? You know, I mean, we'd like to see that. I think that's, uh, you know, what's happening in Wyoming was very interesting. And um, for the industry, not just on that that, um, utility token bill, but some of the others as well. It's possible states could. You know, I think some of the states, we'll see. I think it's it's going to be a different um, calculus in each state. Um, but certainly I think it was a helpful push. And I think what you're seeing is when there's this kind of uncertainty in the federal government or in some cases inaction um, as far as guidance um, by the federal government, you're seeing the states um, step up and try to encourage industry to come to their state and, and to promote it. And is that a good idea for there to be separate state regimes or should there be one federal one? Well, I think it depends, too, on the issue. Um, you know, certainly, I think, with respect to the money transmitter licensing regime, uh, that really is is not functioning well for, for this industry. Uh, and so our position on that is we prefer a, a, a federal solution, ultimately. And what about for the ICO regulation? I would agree with that as well. I mean, it's a little bit, you know, there are some intricacies with respect to different state laws and things and and how they regulate um, versus the federal government. Um, So I think they're going to have to, some of that will have to be worked out. Yeah. And keep in mind, this token and ICO landscape is still incredibly nascent and, and under development. And we're going to continue to see a lot of evolution and tokenization over the near term. And sometimes it's really hard to put together a concrete regulatory framework for something that we know that's going to evolve. And so what we have been doing at the chamber to address the issues and the activity we're seeing around ICOs is write best practices. So we created an initiative called the Token Alliance. We launched it last year with about 160 participants. We've grown that to over 250 blockchain and token experts around the world. We've also brought in um, two former regulators to co-chair this effort. We have um, Dr. Jim Newsom, who's the former chairman of the CFTC, and Paul Atkins, who's a former SEC commissioner, who's overseeing this. And what we're doing is organizing the industry to write what we consider to be the best practices um, for token issuances and the listing of tokens on exchanges and then the interaction between exchanges and token issuers issuers. Now, what regulators are most concerned about and why you're seeing um, so much 
uh, activity from the SEC and our securities regulators is because they're very concerned about the retail consumer. A lot of these token sales are being marketed to just the average person. And some of the activity we're seeing is really exciting. There's a ton of innovation, new technologies starting to arise. But there's also some not so great stuff out there, too. There absolutely are fraudulent ICOs. And it's in our interest the, the, the entire community's interest to be able to address that. And so while we are in the absence of regulatory clarity, um, we're being proactive um, and writing these best practices to be able to regulate ourselves in a way and to be able to have a framework to be able to delineate the good from the bad. And we believe that this will take a at least 90% of the issues that securities regulators today are concerned about, take a lot of that pressure off of them, um, and be able to take a step in creating a framework um, to oversee this activity. We're going to talk more about self-regulation and also taxation, which came up earlier, and money transmitters. But first, I'd like to take a quick break to tell you about our fabulous sponsors, starting with Preciate. Founded by Ed Stevens, Preciate is building the most valuable relationships on earth. In each episode of Unchained, Preciate sponsors the recognition of an individual or group in crypto for an achievement. Today, Preciate is recognizing Chris Berniski, co-founder of Placeholder Ventures. Over the last year, Chris has been a thought leader in the area of crypto asset value Evaluations. He has published several important works on Medium so everyone in the industry can learn and contribute. Kudos to Chris for sharing his knowledge and helping others. Listeners, if you know someone in crypto who should be recognized on a future episode of Unchained, take action and go to appreciate.org slash recognize. That's appreciate.org slash recognize. Bitwise is the creator of the world's first cryptocurrency index fund, the Bitwise Hold 10. The fund holds the top 10 cryptocurrencies by five-year diluted market cap, rebalances monthly, and takes care of secure storage and taxes. It's an easy, secure way for long-term investors to get diversified exposure. Bitwise is backed by Kosla Ventures, General Catalyst, Blockchain Capital, Naval Ravikant, and several others. They're a trusted partner to individual investors, wealth managers, family offices, and large institutions who are navigating the crypto space. The fund has several hundred LPs and is currently accepting accredited investors. To learn more about the Bitwise Cryptocurrency Index Fund or download research, visit www.bitwiseinvestments.com slash unchained. Cryptocurrency is vibrant and exciting, but it's not without its share of bad actors. Exchanges and personal accounts can get hacked. Computers can be infected with malware. Left unprotected, your digital wealth is up for grabs. Don't let yourself be a victim. KeepKey is the safest and simplest way to protect your Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and other tokenized assets. This hardware wallet is a separate device that you control. Brought to you by the pioneering team at ShapeShift. KeepKey works with the wallet software on your computer to manage your private keys and transactions. Your device is pin protected, which renders it useless even if it falls into the wrong hands. Its large display lets you carefully view and approve every transaction. And if your keep key is ever lost or stolen, you can safely recover your device without compromising its private keys. The bottom line? You'll sleep easier knowing that your digital wealth is safe and secure. Visit KeepKey.com to order yours today. Works on PC, Mac, Linux, and Android. So in terms of self-regulation, that was something I wanted to ask about. Is that something that you think is likely to happen? There have been calls both within the industry and also from one of the CFTC commissioners himself. So what is it and, and how likely do you think will go in that direction? Yeah. So, and just to give a little bit of history of how we got here and how this uh, dialogue of an SRO got started, um, CFTC Commissioner uh, Quintens made a statement calling for an SRO, which was really just his kind of action item to the industry to, to get organized and start addressing some of this activity that we're seeing. Um, and so we've asked him to clarify that in a little bit more detail what, what, what he meant by that. And so he came back to uh, the D.C. Blockchain Summit, which is a conference we host at Georgetown every year. And he gave a much more detailed presentation on his vision for an SRO. Now, a self-regulatory organization is something that Congress would 
uh, enact. So a law would be passed, Congress would vote on it, and it would establish a a self-regulatory organization that would uh, be overseen likely by another agency, uh, similar to uh, FINRA or um, the National Futures Association. But what Commissioner Quintens uh, elaborated on is that you could go that route and have a true SRO, this congressionally um, established organization, or the industry could just get organized, create a set of best practices and standards, and do this on their own. Now, the benefit of having a, a true SRO is that you would have the ability to enforce and you'd have the authority to do so. Um, but there's no reason why we can't set up a volunteer, a voluntarily uh, structure today where people would um, volunteer to opt in and to adhere to a set of standards and best practices. And that's essentially what we're doing with the Token Alliance. Um, but uh, this is uh, th- there are significant <laughs> efforts underway to do this. So it, it is inevitable. And, and I think it will evolve over time as the markets continue to mature uh, and as regulators uh, continue to call for, for efforts like this. And so what is the chamber and, and the token alliance? What do you guys think are the best way to move forward in terms of like what are the best practices that industry should adopt? How do you think the SEC should regulate this area? Do you think that they should say sales for initial coins offerings that happen before the network is live should be called securities? That once the network is live, that should be a commodity? Like what, what are all the different recommendations you, both of your organizations make? Right. So the concept of what is a security and tokenization is not clear. And companies want to be compliant. Our members, they want to follow the laws, but there is no official guidance on how to issue or operate a non-security token today in any form. So that is what our best practices will cover. It's if you want to issue a non-security token, how to do so in, in a responsible way. And we're doing this with significant industry input from around the world. So bringing the industry together to agree upon uh, of what those parameters would include. Um, oh, so you haven't decided those yet? Well, that, we're doing it in consortia. So this is not something we're just sitting down and writing. It's something that we're, we have over 260 people around the world contributing um, to do so. So this is not something that we want just one person to sit down and control this by uh, fiat. We want this to be an industry effort because ultimately we need the industry to adopt these best practices. Um, so th- there is a great deal of collaboration um, underway. So th- the first draft of this document is is done um, and it's in peer review right now. So we, we now have all the members of the Token Alliance uh, uh, reviewing it, submitting their input, refining it, making it the best document we can possibly make it, and we'll be publishing it shortly. And does that first draft recommend the use of something like a SAFT for that initial sale before the network launches? Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. So it's a jurisdictionally neutral document. It really more covers the technological aspects of issuing a token or, or operating a, a token. Um, so we do not get into the specific regulatory uh, considerations. And we're doing this so you can use this um, anywhere in the world because this is a, a global movement. We wanted it to be relevant to all those who want to participate um, in this community. So it doesn't get into um, all the regulatory concerns, but we see that as the next step. And what I'd say on that, too, is uh, we do first talk about the entire legal landscape applicable to tokens. So going through the SEC, the CFTC, 
anti-money laundering and sanctions compliance and even some of the tax implications first. You know, just having that kind of as a resource all in one place so that, um, you know, people are fully informed of the things that they need to be thinking about. And then the best practices then go into um, if you are um, issuing what you what is it, what is a true utility token. Here are best practices to to make sure that that you're doing this in appropriate way for uh, potential purchasers, and that purchasers are are fully informed of of uh, of what the the business model and the, and the product is is about. And since you mentioned before that you are talking with the SEC, do you have any clues yet as to how they plan to proceed? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I think we can take some of the clues from some of the statements we've seen in the media. You know, there are uh, what we've seen publicly are that there are investigations ongoing. There are these subpoenas that have been issued, some confusion over how many subpoenas and to whom. But, um, you know, I, I would expect we'll see more enforcement actions before we see less. Unfortunately, but I think that can help provide some guardrails. Um, and, um, you know, I would hope some uh, guidance too, uh, um, rather than purely um, enforcement as a tool to inform the industry. Um, but I would expect to see more enforcement actions this year. So, one thing that I also wanted to ask about, and this gets us into money transmitter territory, is and correct me if I'm wrong, apparently FinCEN also said that ICO issuers could be considered money transmitters. But as far as I understand, a money transmitter is a company more similar to Western Union, where they take money from someone and pass it to someone else. So if that's the case, what laws do ICO issuers have to comply with? Well, I mean, I think, yeah, you're talking about the letter that FinCEN sent to Senator Wyden. Um, you know, I don't think, I mean, since that's a little bit of my background, what they said in there wasn't surprising to me. I think, you know, they, they said what their law says, which is based on the facts and circumstances. Companies may be considered money transmitters if they receive money, um, for transmission or, or funds with the value of funds for transmission to another person or another location. So then if you are going to issue a token, you have to kind of assess your business model, the way that your funds flow, how your virtual currencies or, or whatever, the tokens are issued, however you're characterizing those, um, and make a determination on a case-by-case basis if, if money transmission on the federal level applies. And then you probably need to look at the state laws as well. Um, each state does deal with it a little bit differently, um, unfortunately. Um, that's what we're dealing with today. And so you'd have to take a look at that and take position and it, and probably involves some legal advice. Is it possible to be both a money transmitter and also a security issuer at the same time? Well, um, the money transmitter, I, mean, I think that the FinCEN regulations exclude from the money transmitter definitions um, SEC and CFTC registered entities, and there's some technical language in the Bank Secrecy Act regulations, so you'd have to look at that carefully to see if you actually did fit within that exclusion. Um, which really means you're just excluded from the FinCEN portion, but it puts you into the equivalent on the the equivalent coverages for securities or commodities. Right. But I guess I'm just trying to get at the point that it doesn't sound like you can be a money transmitter and an issuer of a security at the same time. Right. Like it would be one or the other. And then the laws would apply for whichever category you were put in. Is that correct? Uh, you know, I don't know that if that's correct. Uh, I think it would depend on which part of your business. If it's the same exact, if you're talking about the same exact activity, that might be true. But again, oh, I would yeah, look, yeah, I that's would what seek, I meant. Yeah, I, I would seek legal advice on that question as well. Yes, and actually, just for anybody listening, nothing we're saying at all is right, discussion is legal advice. <laughs> I, I feel like I have to say that just since I'm I'm a lawyer, so. Okay, so um, we have been discussing a few other really big topics and uh, the the couple of them that I definitely want to cover are taxation and money transmitters. But let's start with taxation. What is the current state of taxation in crypto? So this is one of my favorite topics to talk about because I worked on um, tax policy when I worked on the Hill. And it's just really fascinating 
where we are today in tax policy in the United States. So in 2014, the IRS issued guidance that convertible virtual currencies would be treated as property. So as all of us who in the blockchain and crypto space are very well aware, um, your transactions, anytime you use a cryptocurrency um, to, to purchase um, anything, uh, it is subject to capital gains, which is a huge um, administrative burden, um, as we are all aware. Um, the issue is that the IRS didn't do the best job of explaining how to comply with this guidance. There's a lot of areas that have not been clarified. For one, um, how do you calculate the fair market value of virtual currency when there is no standard exchange rate? So what exchange rate are you supposed to use? We don't really know. Um, what about for miners? If you acquire crypto through mining, what is the tax treatment of that? Another really big and important question. And also for merchants who are holding cryptocurrency, is that considered capital or an ordinary asset? Again, um, there's, there, there is no answer for that. So there has been a very hard time for the community of following the laws, of being compliant, because we have a lot of questions. Um, and it's, it's been a frustrating process because the IRS actually um, accepted comments from the public in 2014, and the public submitted a lot of these questions over to the IRS, and they didn't answer any of the questions. They never responded to the public opportunity for comment, which is <laughs> a little, um, not quite sure why, you know, they, they didn't they didn't respond. Um, so a couple years went by, and then the IRS's um, inspector general um, issued, well, they did an audit on the IRS's virtual currency program, and they issued a report um, that really criticized the IRS's virtual currency program, saying there's a lot of areas that you haven't answered questions, you received a bunch of comments, you didn't respond to them, um, and, uh, and really, you know, asked the IRS to follow up on these questions, and they didn't. Um, instead, the IRS issued a John Doe summons on Coinbase, um, as I'm sure you've, you're aware of, um, uh, asking for the records of about a half a million of their users. And they, you know, really seem to erroneously cast this perception that all cryptocurrency users are tax evaders. Um, but really, I think most of us just need to better understand how to comply with this property um, guidance. So that's where we are today. Um, it, it's, it's a little bit of a mess. So in response to this, we at the chamber have developed a, um, a tax policy position um, to advocate for just a better way to tax cryptocurrencies or virtual currencies. Um, and we believe that virtual currencies should be treated like currency, just like the U.S. dollar. They should be allowed to function as currencies. And I would argue that a big reason why we haven't seen Bitcoin or other virtual currencies really take off as a medium of exchange is because if you're using it as a medium of exchange, you have this administrative nightmare of having to calculate your gains or your loss on every single transaction. So we believe and we're fighting um, to make um, virtual currencies um, treated fairly like that of a, a currency or an alternative currency. Um, and, um, and they should be, in order to achieve that, um, you can do this pretty simply by just excluding them from the capital gains and the investment income tax and all the um, reporting requirements that would come with that. So I totally understand your point here. It completely makes sense. Obviously, if I, I'm trying to pay for a cup of coffee and I have to calculate how much I paid for the money that I'm using and then what the capital gain is when I buy the coffee. Obviously, it's pretty cumbersome. But at the same time, when you hear people just talking about buying Bitcoin, they don't they don't talk about it the way they talk about currency. They talk about, quote unquote, investing in Bitcoin or investing in crypto assets. So when you have people thinking of it in that way, does it really make sense to, to tax these as currencies? You know, I think that people have been, you know, we've been kind of pushed into that direction um, because, uh, in part, because the IRS, you know, treats vir convertible virtual currency as property. And then you have, um, you know, Bitcoin futures contracts being offered and you're seeing these price fluctuations. So I think 
that is where the market has gone due to both regulatory um, and then just some of the volatility. Um, but if you're looking at this, if you're looking at the horizon, right? Uh, first of all, if you're looking at the beginning and then looking at the horizon, um, this was originally created as a form, a method of payment, a method of exchange, a mechanism of value transfer. And, and that's really where some of its amazing utility sits. And we're really not, this IRS tax treatment is really hindering that potential um, in significant ways. And I, and it, our view is if that's corrected, we'll start to see um, some, some of this normalize um, in a way that makes more sense. So, and I know that this is a difficult, this is not an easy, this is, this is not an easy um, request. This isn't an easy, it's a challenge. It's going to be a, a significant challenge, but we think it's worth it. It's worth it to get this treated right um, and, and as close to the beginning as we can. Um, so we'll keep pushing on it and, and see what kind of progress we can make. Yeah. And, and also just to, to, to build on that is we also need to recognize and, and pay attention to other dynamics that are happening in this community. And there's many central banks around the world who are looking at ways um, to integrate blockchain um, technology to create their own digital currencies. So if central banks are looking to use this technology to issue currencies, it cannot possibly be a property at the same time. That is that is a good point. But one other thing I wanted to ask was, do you, so the government does seem to believe that people are evading taxes with cryptocurrencies. Do you have a good sense of whether or not that's true? I think people are having a hard time understanding how to comply with the property designation. Again, there's a lot of areas where the IRS has not been able to clearly um, articulate how to comply with that designation. And so because of that, um, it makes it very hard to, to, to be able to do so. So I don't think that's a fair characterization. I, th- I mean, at, at the chamber, we represent over 160 companies, all of which adhere to our code of ethics. And our companies, they want to follow the law, they want to do the right thing, and they will do the right thing if you tell them how to do so. So speaking of companies wanting to do the right thing, let's move to the money transmitter issue. I know that many in the industry feel that one of the obstacles to growth is the fact that a lot of crypto companies need to get licenses from 53 different states and territories. What kinds of companies need to to do that? And why is it 53 different licenses? Um, well, so the types of, I mean, those would be, you know, I think the classic example would be um, your exchange platforms um, who have um, applied for those licenses. Um, and the reason you have to do that is because money transmission, um, unlike national association banks who are regulated by the OCC, um, money transmitters are regulated at the state level, so through the state banking departments. And so if you're engaging with um, customers or residents of those states, um, you need to apply for the license, um, meet all the standards that the, the banking departments have, and then also maintain those standards and go through ex- exams. And so that applies to all 50 states and several territories, although they each apply it a little bit differently. And do you get a sense of how much this is hindering growth? I mean, have we seen any companies get all 53 different licenses? Uh, no, we haven't. Um, we've seen them get maybe 28, maybe the low 30s in, as far as number of state licenses. Um, and that's because some states, you know, you see some states, uh, the requirements in those states are designed to test the the capital structure and the capitalization of these um, companies and uh, make sure that the executives and other personnel are qualified to, to run that kind of a business that will, um, you know, take or transfer um, consumer assets. So they, they treat those categories of qualifications differently. And, and one way that that can be an impediment is if um, the reserves that they require um, an exchange to maintain um, are required to be maintained in U.S. dollars. Um, so that would require a company to essentially maintain double valuation, basically. You'll have, for example, Bitcoin um, that you would owe to your customers on any one day and then also have to back that up with a U.S. dollar. Um, so those, that can be quite burdensome and in some cases has forced companies to leave the state because of it. This is very much a regulatory failure. It's unacceptable that in the year of 2018, 
we still do not have one company in the entire industry that's been able to get licensed across the entire United States. It's sad. And we are seeing many companies that are either closing up shop, cutting off uh, customers in certain states, or just moving overseas. And it's also really difficult for consumers, and it hinders consumers because uh, the people who want to use this technology in some states, they don't have access to any exchanges. So they're being forced to use services overseas. So it's, um, it's a vicious cycle, and we deserve something better. Um, and uh, that's something we are fighting for um, at the chamber is to be able to address this. Um, and, and we believe we need a federal solution to truly fix this issue. And what would that look like, the federal solution? That's a great question. We've spent a lot of time um, talking about that. And you also want to be careful um, what, what you ask for. So there was, you know, we have seen this dialogue start to open up on the federal level. You know, the, the Office of the Comptroller of, of the Currency or the OCC um, tried to launch a fintech charter. Um, it's It's been stalled, um, but they did go through um, several years of comments and deliberations and even put out um, the first draft of a licensing manual to establish a, a banking charter for fintech companies. And it turned into a big political fight. Once um, the OCC um, went down this path, there were states that were very threatened by this and who are now suing the OCC, saying the OCC doesn't have the jurisdiction to do this. So the state of New York and the Conference of State Bank Supervisors um, have sued the OCC over this. So the dialogue is starting to open up, and the OCC has led that. Um, but as of today, we, we still don't have, um, we still don't have um, an option, but it's something um, you know, hopefully in the long run we'll be able to, to achieve. The other thing I would just add to that is, I mean, one option is looking at it from a special purpose national bank charter at the OCC. Um, the other way would be um, if there is some type of oversight over the, the spot markets that's being suggested by the CFTC, um, it, that would have to specifically preempt state law um, in order to work. Um, but, there, you know, so there are some alternatives, and, and maybe there's even more ways to think about that. I mean, I think whatever whatever solution we, you know, whatever path we start to go down really needs to take into account the unique nature of virtual currency um, and, and tokens and, and how that differs maybe from the way we've traditionally thought about these types of um, licensing or chartering or authorizations. An additional area of confusion, I think, that's occurring around this kind of like state-federal divide is that I think some states have been issuing state-specific legislation for smart contracts. And I know you guys are opposed, the chamber's opposed. What do these laws say and why do you think state laws for smart contracts are a problem? So, you know, I think this is actually coming from a, a good place. I mean, I think these legislators are trying to help the industry. And, and for that, you know, we need more. Of, we need more supporters like that. Um, I think the issue is just that the very specific type of legislation that you've mentioned, which is um, state efforts to amend their Uniform Electronic Transactions Act to include specifically blockchain and smart contracts. So what these um, uniform acts do is recognize electronic signatures and electronic records um, where a written record is required or where a written signature is required. Um, and so but the way but the way that they're already written is electronic signature, electronic record. It's not uh, technology specific. Um, so first of all, just by doing this, it doesn't it's not needed. I mean, first, it's unnecessary because it already should cover for that. Second is that this, well, second is that the states are also not creating these laws uniformly themselves. There's, I mean, anything from minor deviations to, you know, to, to different types of authorizations that they're putting into their, their statutes. So that's kind of, it, it equates to what you just mentioned, which is the money transmitter quagmire, uh, which we may be heading down that road. Um, and then the third is that the federal e-sign act. So on the federal level, there's an electronic signatures, um, and electronic records act that says that to the extent a state, um, deviates from that standard or specifically references or calls out technology, that's preempted. So now we're creating a legal question as to, well, does that preemption apply to what these states are doing? And you know, so now it's actually opening up some doors, um, uh, some questions. And so, 
So, yeah. So unfortunately we're, we're become, you know, we're advocating more than um, we would like to have to, but, you know, to reach out to these state legislators and try to explain to them this situation and, and, you know, hopefully point out to them, here's some other ways, you know, let's, let's think of other ways we can work together to promote the industry. I also want to talk about anti-money laundering. I know that that's an issue lawmakers are worried about what anti-money laundering with cryptocurrency, or or rather they're worried about money laundering with cryptocurrency. How big is that risk and how well are crypto companies complying with anti-money laundering laws? Well, I think what we've seen said publicly so far is, I mean, I think money laundering is going to be a risk in in any agency, in any industry uh, that you're in. So we need to understand that that risk exists and people need to take precautions. But we need to understand the, the size of that risk. And there's been reports that say that money laundering in this industry is less than 1% of the overall industry, um, whereas reports beyond that, um, you know, with respect to the U.S. dollar, um, estimate it to be a vastly larger number. Uh, but we take it seriously. Money laundering is a significant concern. And, um, and we have companies within the Chamber's membership that actually assist companies assist financial institutions and government um, in ways to identify trends, identify money laundering and ways to to fight it. Yeah, one thing I wanted to flag for listeners is that if you haven't heard the episode with Catherine Hahn from about a year and a half ago, she talked about tracking crimes with the blockchain. <laughs> and so I could understand why maybe there hasn't been a huge amount of uptake of money laundering with, with cryptocurrency based for, based on uh, her her remarks. And I actually just also wanted to flag that uh, I'm starting to realize there have been so many previous episodes where we've covered issues that are similar to the ones we're discussing in this episode. So I will link to them in the show notes and you should check them out. Some of the ones um, that come to mind. I mentioned like the one with Marco Santori, but also there was one with Coin Center where we talked about the Howey test. There was also another episode about uh, the Coinbase case. So there's definitely a lot to dig into if you find this conversation fascinating. The last thing I wanted to ask you guys is I was curious to know how the U.S. compares with other jurisdictions when it comes to regulation of crypto. Well, the United States federal government is organized very different than most other countries. So we have a very fragmented approach to regulation, especially on financial services. So we have the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, We also have a separate regulator for um, the futures markets, the CFTC. We have multiple bank regulators from the Fed, the FDIC, the OCC, So one of the biggest challenges the United States faces is this fragmented approach where there are a lot of different stakeholders and they're not necessarily very well coordinated either. And in other areas of the world where they have less complicated markets and smaller governments, uh, a lot of them will just have one financial services regulator. So for example, in Singapore, the monetary authority of Singapore is both their central bank and their bank regulator and all things financial services. So there's just one entity you have to go to if you want to issue a product or, um, or you know, work in the financial services um, industry in that jurisdiction. Or in the United Kingdom is another example of that. They have the um, UK FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority. So it's kind of a one-stop shop. So it's a lot easier when you only have one agency or one entity that's having to develop the policy for this industry. So the U.S. is very unique, and it takes a lot more coordination. And there's a lot more stakeholders that you have to work with and get them to work together um, so it, it's, it's just different. Um, so because of that, um, some of these other areas of the world are um, have been able to, to really get to market faster or have been able to develop policy positions or sandboxes um, faster um, and easier than the, the U.S. And, and that really is working against us. And when you say that, you mean like it's hindering the pace of innovation in, in the industry here in the U.S.? Yeah, because there's such, you know, a lack of clarity in so many areas. And to get that clarity, you have to get multiple regulators to sit together and make this a priority and discuss it and to come up with a determination um, where that's a much longer process than if you went to, um, you know, another jurisdiction where there's just one office, there's, you know, one or two people overseeing the issue and they can make a decision and um, without having to go through uh, you know, the same process we would have to go through here. 
Um, so like the idea of putting together a sandbox, we don't have one in the United States. Where would you even put it? So it's, it's other countries have had a lot more success and been able to, to move a lot faster than the U.S. because of, of that. And I think the idea of the sandbox just shows that I think there are some countries that are capitalizing um, on this opportunity to, to make an advantage for themselves in, um, in technology industry. And so you're seeing regulators working with industry in a regulated, in a controlled environment um, to, help, to help both parties, I think, learn from each other. Um, you know, they, they, the regulators have the advantage of learning about the technology and the, um, the companies, um, uh, the innovators have the advantage of gaining a better understanding of what might work and what might not work from a regulatory standpoint. Uh, so there's definitely an advantage in that system that we're not, we're not seeing here right now. Well, I know that regulators at this SEC, at least, and hopefully regulators at other agencies do listen to this show. So if they haven't heard this message already from industry, I'm sure then they will hear it now. Um, <laughs> so it's been fantastic having you both as guests. Where can people learn more about the chamber? So you can visit our website, digitalchamber.org. Um, we did just publish two new white papers, one on cybersecurity and intellectual property. So um, thank you for the conversation, Laura. We've been able to get into a lot of topics, um, but we do have a prolific platform underway and we do oversee a number of issues. Um, so we encourage you to visit our website to learn more. Great. Well, thank you both for coming on the show. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Perry Ann and Amy, check out the show notes inside your podcast episode. New episodes of Unchained come out every Tuesday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you like this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Zelby, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening.